0: Stay hungry, stay foolish. Imagine what you could do with the time you spend writing emails every day. Complexity is killing companies' ability to innovate and adapt, and simplicity is fast becoming the competitive advantage of our time. Our guest today helps leaders and their teams move beyond the feelings of frustration and futility that come with so much unproductive work in today's corporate world to create a corporate culture where valuable, essential, meaningful work is the norm. By learning how to eliminate redundancies, communicate with clarity, and make simplification a habit, individuals and companies can begin to recognize which activities are time sucks and which create lasting value. Simplification is the right thing to do for our customers, for our company, and for each other. Simplification drives culture, and culture in turn drives employee engagement, customer relations, and overall productivity. We welcome author of Why Simple Wins Escape the Complexity Trap and Get to Work That Matters. Lisa Bodell, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: You open with the story of Mike, a story many of our listeners will know all too well. And I pulled a passage from this Lisa, which goes as follows: Mike's feeling even more frustrated. He never gets time for strategic thinking, not even early in the morning or late at night. He took this job to work on high-profile projects and develop cutting-edge applications. He imagined themselves not just framing strategy, but brainstorming with marketing teams and helping R and D create better, more innovative products. In reality. Most of his efforts were encumbered by the highly inefficient ways that people in his organization work. Too much structure, too many outdated systems, too many complex forms for human resources, IT and accounting. Why was it so hard to collaborate? Why did decisions take so long to make? Why couldn't meetings and emails be shorter, simpler and fewer? I thought this was a nice way to frame what you get into the book and how we can remove so much complexity from organizations. I'd love if you use this to explain Mike's world and also the world that you help with, Lisa.
1: Happily, when I started to write the book, the reason I knew that this was going to be a book that hit home with people is because my publisher said, just put pen to paper, just start writing. And that story literally just flowed out of me in five minutes. Because it's something we all experience and it's very visceral, right? You read it and you just head nod the whole time like, oh, yeah, that's my work. And I think that was the real cool thing for me going through it. It was really cool in terms of doing research, but it was also kind of therapeutic because all of us experienced this and it was a journey for me to figure out how do we fix it. Mike's a metaphor, right? He's all of us. And that's what I think is so cool. And I'm glad it really resonated with you because we're not able to do the things we were hired to do. And that's the terrible irony and result of too much complexity. And that's why I wrote the book, because I wanted to solve that so we could get to not just the work that mattered, but the work we were hired to do in the first place.
0: There's too many mics in the world, isn't there? There's too many people hampered by complexity, sacrificing productivity, purpose, ultimately sacrificing life. And you say in the book, Confucius said, life is really simple, but we insist on making it complicated. And business is so complicated today.
1: You're giving me the idea that I'm going to come up with some merch that just as t-shirts that say, we are all Mike. I think that might be a bestseller. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I like that quote from Confucius because I think that we make it so complicated and business, it just confounds it. It's a real problem because all of us want simplicity, but all of us create complexity. And that's the first thing that people need to do. I want them to think of this book like therapy, which is we create the beast so if we even just look within our own sphere of control, there's a lot of complexity we can get rid of right now. And my goal in the book was to teach people
0: how. Throughout today's shows, we're going to talk about how organizations both waste people's time and their own money and resource, but also how individually we can maximize our time. And you say time is our most precious resource. So you would think people would be more deliberate about the use of time, both as individuals and organizations. But we are so far from that.
1: That's a great point. And one of the things I talk about that if I'm on stage and I start talking about time and how it's wasted, this is when people really start to lean in and they really start to head nod and it gets people upset because time is a non-renewable resource. You will never get it back. And it is always astounding to me. Uh, Think about this. Why do we get so mad when people waste our money, but we don't get the same level of mad when people consistently waste our time? And it's the psychology where we we know money's tangible, but because time is intangible, we really, it's almost like we don't value it enough. And we have to start getting around the psychology of um, valuing our time more and changing what we value. So when I talk to people about how speed is so important at work, but we have no time, we need to start treating our time like we treat money. And we need to protect it and get it back. That really resonates with people because- Time is much more emotional to people on many levels than just money.
0: You talk about the mixed blessing of technology as well. And we mentioned this a lot on the show about how, for example, it can increase efficiencies, but also take away so much of our efficiency. And one of the examples you give is the immediacy of email and how it creates a vicious cycle of off my plate and back onto yours.
1: Technology, it's one of those questions when someone says that when it comes to simplicity or complexity, is technology helpful or hurtful? Is it good or bad? And the answer is yes. I think about my phone, right? That's the easiest analogy, which is thank God for all the apps I have. I can really reference a lot of information. But also, oh my God, look at all the apps I have. And I get sucked into this downward spiral every day with my apps that take me away from more meaningful things. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. And that gets back to protecting your time valuable things you know just because technology lets me do more doesn't mean it's letting me do valuable and that's the psychological shift we have to think about when it comes to shifting from complexity to simplicity
0: yeah and i love the all the studies and research that you quote throughout the book and one of the ones that you mention is when you combine all the ways that executives can receive communication phone calls email ims etc The number of incoming messages the average executive gets has grown from 1,000 each year in 1970s to more than 30,000 per year today. And that just shows that it's just nonstop. So we have to have some strategy to deal with the incoming.
1: That's not even the the half of it. I mean, there's other stats about how policies, procedures, governance structures, regulations have increased up to 350%. We measure six times the metrics that we did decades ago. And the idea, again, is just because you can. With data doesn't mean you should. Do you need sixty metrics on something? You know, it's kind of like we're becoming so reliant on it. And data is good, by the way, but we just we do too much, and so we have to start to get comfortable with what's as much as possible, what's enough versus too much, because now we don't even trust our gut anymore. And I think we're losing some of that humanity in the data. So again, if we can get comfortable with simplifying as much as possible that will give people a a way to move fast, but still have a level of comfort when taking a risk.
0: And you mentioned there, the PNP, the policies and procedures, but bureaucracy is prevalent in organizations, but with well meaning intentions, organizations often have negative effects and impacts. A classic example of the way organizations inadvertently make life complex is in the process of trying to solve a legitimate problem, such as performance evaluations. I'd love if you took us through this one.
1: For example, Accenture is one of our clients, and they're great. They were one of the first people to pioneer getting rid of performance evaluations. And here's the thing on that. One, don't do that unless you really know what the the human impact is going to be. Because policies are one thing, but human behavior is quite another. And so much of human behavior is driven by one thing, fear. And if you get rid of performance evaluations – how will I be evaluated? How will people know I'm doing my job? How will I know that I'm I'm worthy? How will I not get fired? So all these kind of psychological things came into play there, which made people still do the same thing. They were still doing evaluations. They got rid of them on paper, but people were still doing them because of this human factor. I think evaluations are good. I just think the big annual cumbersome ones are bad. It's how they're done is bad. So there's one thing we do that was a happy accident. It's called PPCO, and it's a tool we use to help people overcome skepticism and fear and being open to change and ideas that can also be applied to evaluations. If you'll indulge me, let me tell you about it. It's a shorter way that people can judge ideas. It's a structure, but they can also do it for more rapid, frequent HR evaluations, because I think evaluations are better when they are more in the moment and they're done more frequently so people can improve right? versus an annual need for a raise. So this technique called PPCO is about taking a product or an idea, and you list all the potentials, all the pluses, all the concerns, and all the ways to overcome those concerns. So that's PPCO. And through that process, you realize that there's good things, bad things. You have concerns, but there's ways we could go about and improve it. Now let's rapid cycle it and make it better, rather than just dismissing it as good or bad. The same framework can be applied to people. And we've had this within a lot of our pharma clients adopt this as their way to do performance evaluations. They use PPCO to evaluate their people in terms of people's pluses, their potentials, the concerns they have about their current performance, and then suggestions to overcome it. Why is this great? It's fast. It's a shorter eval. It can be done more frequently, and it creates a conversation versus a fearsome evaluation. So again, it's not evaluations are bad, but it's how it's done. It's, it's too complex. So I, I would vote people to improve them and do them more frequently.
0: You tell us throughout the book that it's easier to build on top of the things that we've already established than to blow up what exists and replace it with something simple. And this is one of the big challenges of innovation is that because we get wedded to an idea of how we do things, it's very difficult to reimagine it. I'm reminded here of Jack Welch, who was infamous or famous for removing middle management and unnecessary bureaucracy, which earned him the name Jack the Ripper. But as organizations grow, and particularly as they merge and acquire growth, they become even more complicated Frankensteins of sorts with new departments, policies, procedures, and people lumped together without taking the time to recalibrate and rethink the organization. And one of the stats you mentioned was staggering, which was for every new manager introduced, it increases complexity by 1.5 for each member of the team.
1: Yeah, and it's just astounding. It's we have the best of intentions, but we don't realize the implications. So, what we do with people is they need some structure, right? Everyone needs structure and organization. I think no structure is a silly idea, but within that structure, they have to constantly be looking at how can we simplify. Like that has to be their operating system. And when you bring in a new manager or you bring in new products, anything you develop or put in place, you have to. First, put it in place with this in mind and then review it on an ongoing basis with this in mind. You know, I I talk in the book about MIRA, which is a a terrible acronym, but a really good framework, which is how can you make, if you want to simplify something, make something as minimal, understandable, repeatable, and accessible as possible. And that goes for people's roles. That goes for processes. That goes for structure in an organization. So how can you make it as minimal as possible? How can you make people or processes as understandable or clear? How can you make them repeatable? That's what happens with managers. Things are not repeatable. And how can you make them accessible? That's the other thing with managers. How can you make them as accessible as possible without being overwhelmed? So, you know, if people that want to go back and read the book, I would invite them to think about Mira, whether it's for a product or the people they add into Their teams.
0: Just to say, we can't do justice to the book because it's full of frameworks and you're so generous in giving away all the frameworks, the questionnaires, etc. You can tell your mission is pure. Talking about mission and purpose, this is a huge part of the book that you really focus on is let's get rid of all this bureaucracy and miscommunication and complexity so people can focus on purpose and mission and stuff that really lights up their day rather than the mire and the complexity.
1: I mean, people really want to focus on work that matters. What really strikes me is how much of our time is spent doing work that we weren't hired to do. I believe that people want to and were hired to do meaningful things. That's why they came to their jobs in the first place. No one wakes up in the morning, looks at their inbox and says, oh, you know, I'm so popular. This is so amazing. I can't wait to spend more time on email. God, look how amazing I am. And if you ask them when they were interviewed, by the way, for a job, was one of the questions when you were being interviewed, you know, how good are you at giving meetings? Show me how you can write a great email. No one interviews with that, but that's what we spend most of our time doing. And teams recognize that. And so what they try and do now is they try and get rid of all that meaning meaningless work to make space for meaningful work, right? That fulfills their potential. But here's the irony is that when you ask people, when they say, I wish I was doing more meaningful work, right? Rather than drowning in things and emails, They don't know how to define it. They don't know how to answer it. They give these lofty things about, well, I do more strategic things or, well, I spend more time with clients, but what specifically would you do? And we do an exercise with teams where we help them, first of all, get rid of the stuff that they think is crap, you know, the meaningless work. And they're very good at being able to identify that because that's the pain point, right? We're really good with fear and pain. But then once they get rid of it and you say, you have all this time now, what do you want to be doing? And, it takes people a minute to get started and they start listing it and listing it. And once they get going, what's really cool is as a team and as people, they start to get back to defining what is meaningful to them. How can they have a compass now that they can focus on that? And how can they make sure that every day they can make better decisions around what they're doing? Is it Does it get them towards its meaningful goal or not? Because if it doesn't, maybe they shouldn't be doing it. And this We can talk about this a little bit too, is this is helping people decide where they spend their time and how they change their values around, am I doing meaningful things or am I just being busy? And most of us
0: are just busy. Your focus here is organizations and that's your expertise, but ultimately you're helping people in their lives because they're going to be happier. I was telling you off air that so many people are really, really busy. And a and mother said to me once that, when she's in work, she feels guilty that she's not at home with her kids. And then when she's at home with her kids, all she can do is think about work. And that, as you mentioned, that overflowing inbox, but ultimately if we can free up people in organizations to give them more purposeful work, they're going to be happier and they're going to have better lives.
1: There's a big psychological shift that has to happen. What we value today and what we say we value, there is a huge chasm between those two things, because we say we want to be a simpler life. We wanna do less, we wanna spend more time on things that matter. But in life, and especially at work, we value doing more, not less. You are rewarded, you are bonused, you are given promotions based on doing more, not less. So that has to shift. We are rewarded or feel a dopamine hit when we are doing, not when we are thinking. And the result of that actually is, people feel more comfortable when they are busy, you know, those people like, for example, that can't, can't not have their phone in their hand for more than 30 seconds, right? Like a dopamine hit. It's the same thing with being busy is that people feel like if they are not busy, they are not valued and they will not be perceived as valued. So one of the big things I was talking with the CEO of a pharma company recently, when I was over in Switzerland, and I said, I think the biggest challenge you're going to have isn't that people want to get rid of stuff. It's what happens after that. And especially leaders are going to have to get comfortable with what it feels like to be unbusy. And once they can get there, their teams will follow. That unbusy is okay. And I am valuable by not being invited to meetings because that's not worth my time versus always being invited to meetings because I'm so important.
0: And as you said, leadership sets the tone. I'm going to come back to leadership because it's so important here. But there was one thing I was thinking there. You mentioned the pharma industry, and that's. The common theme of so much complexity, which is regulation and it's needed. Regulation is needed to an extent. And one industry I really empathize with, and we have lots of listeners to the show with is CEOs and C-suite executives of banks and innovation workers in banks. And so many good people leave those organizations, particularly today, because they're being headhunted by fintechs and the, the challenger banks, but because regulation is less. But in truth, red tape has mushroomed across all sectors of the business world. And you share a study which is fascinating by Vanderbilt University, which found that colleges and universities spent roughly 27 billion combined per year on federal compliance, eating up as much as 11% of expenditures. Firstly, the expenditure is massive, but 27 billion when people are struggling to pay college fees is just criminal.
1: It is criminal, and let me give you a few points on regulation, which is certain industries obviously need regulation, but it becomes too much, right? That's where I go back to my mirror, like, let's make it as much as possible, and not more, and not less. I think that the issue around regulation, however, is, and we work mostly with regulated industries, and that's on purpose, because if we can simplify within regulated industries, we can do it with anybody. So we work with banks, we work with defense firms, we work with pharmaceuticals, etc., and it's interesting to me because they'll say, everyone, by the way, every industry thinks they're more complex than the other. <laughs> everyone does, <laughs> <knows. laughs> which I always love. You know, pharma has it worse, the banks and defense has it worse, and government has it worse. But anyway, people start to use regulation as an excuse of why they can't simplify. And I think that's just not the case because within every industry, there are people that are simplified and people that are complex. And the people that are the best are the ones that don't use regulation as an excuse. And the reason why is because so much of complexity within a company isn't because of regulation. This is the fascinating thing we found, which is you have to think of it like an onion or a bullseye, right, that you get more towards the center. When you ask people what's complex at their company, especially in a regulated industry, the first thing they'll say is, well, we're regulated. And I, you know, not everybody spends their time on regulation all day long. And then they'll say, well, you know, what's really complicated then as a result of that is the organization, and the structure, you know, the things that they put in place to manage the regulation. And then I'll say, but so that's what you do. You spend your time every day on regulation, the organizational stuff. And they'll say, no, no, no. What bothers me every day, what really bothers them is tactical complexity. And this gets into policies, procedures, frankly, meetings, emails, all that kind of stuff in their sphere of control. And then when you really ask them what drives that, like things like decision-making and too many complex processes is behavioral complexity. So yes, they're regulated, but every single day on your team, right? The place where you operate every day, it's risk, fear, power, control, trust. That's what drives complexity. That's why you're CC'd on too many emails that don't matter. That's why you sit in too many meetings that completely suck. That's why decision-making is multi-layered. If we can start to address the behaviors in our sphere of control you could dramatically increase your productivity in a regulated company.
0: Trust is the bedrock. And we had Amy Edmondson on before Christmas Mm. and she talked about psychological safety being the soil in which crops can grow. And it's the same thing here that so many emails, those emails that go as discussed in our meeting just now, they're cover your ass behaviors because people are fearful that it's gonna come back and bite them in the ass. (laughs) And I loved chapter three in particular because you address us individually beyond the organization. And I quote you here, you talk about emails as a double edged sword. And you say, they knew emails. This is when you asked people, they knew emails were a big problem, sucking up valuable time and energy, but they felt they couldn't choose unilaterally to stop responding to incoming messages, because their bosses would perceive them as slackers. And therefore they were trapped in this perpetuating cycle they couldn't escape from.
1: That's the irony, right? And we'll see, we see this with both emails and meetings as people. People will say, God, my inbox is drowning. And see, the thing with complexity, by the way, is everyone thinks everyone else is the problem. No one thinks they create it. Everyone else is the problem. And emails are a two-way street. If you can stop doing emails, but that doesn't stop the flood into your inbox. It is kind of a team decision of how we're going to change these behaviors. No reply alls. There's a great thing that I discovered from one of my pharma clients. This was Merck in Canada. They had a simplicity team and they said, let's tackle this inbox. Let's get to inbox zero. And They said, what do you think is the biggest thing that clogs our inbox? Let's just try and manage this. And they said it's all those crappy CYA emails or FYI emails that people respond to with like, thanks, got it. Or they feel like they need to respond with a long multi-paragraph response to an article you sent, which was just meant to be an FYI. They actually started a thing called NNTR, which is if something is meant to be just one-way communication, like an FYI, they type NNTR into the subject line, which means no need to respond. And it gives people permission not to respond. And you look like a jerk if you do respond. And that cut down email in their inboxes by 18%. Just that little trick alone. So I think it's getting on the same page with how you behave with email. So people stop feeling the need to CYA and look smart all the time.
0: I love that. And I actually used that yesterday. It was beautiful. I used that no need to respond. And the person was so happy. They were just so happy. They rang me. (laughs) They're like, that was brilliant. I was like going... You're still responding. Now you're even adding it. You still
1: respond. I know. I was just going to say, but they're so
0: happy because it's like that. uh, I don't know if you ever saw There's a clip on YouTube and it's like the crazy dancer. So there's always somebody who has to start and it starts a riot where everybody else starts. It needs somebody to kind of go, you know what? Enough is enough here Mm -hmm. and start the ball rolling. And this leads me to leadership because leadership sets the tone, as I said. And we know this in every aspect of leadership from innovation to culture, but this is also the case for simplification. And here you emphasize the need for six leadership characteristics. I'd love if you took us through this.
1: Absolutely. I think the thing about simplicity is it's almost, it it can be as annoying as telling someone to be innovative. You know, everyone wants to be innovative, but they don't know how to do it. And when your boss comes to you and says, you know, go forth and be innovative, everyone's like, uh, how, right? Because, uh, in what way? Same thing with simplicity. If someone tells you to go simple, Simplify, your first reaction is like oh oh what but what can I and what can't I what are the guardrails here So leadership setting the tone to your point is critical so I I asked leaders what do you think really makes a difference and here's what I found the first is if you really want to simplify that takes courage uh, because how so much as we've already talked about is driven by fear right um, And also there's a lot of ego by the way tied to the complexity that exists because I want to eliminate everyone else's meetings but I don't want people to eliminate mine. Why do you? Not, why is mine not valuable, right? So it takes courage to tell people why you want to eliminate it and make space for better things. Um, the second thing is a minimalist sensibility. So you really need to make sure that you approach everything with simplicity in mind. So it becomes literally your operating system. Every time you approach a new person, new policy, new procedure, you have to ask, is it as simple as possible? Using that kind of Mira framework. The next is being really results oriented. And that sounds really, you know, kind of HBR cliche. Who doesn't want to be results oriented? But most of us aren't. We're task oriented. And so the thing I say to people is you have to say, what's the result? And if this task doesn't get to it, don't do it. Kind of like it's not about how much is on your to-do list. It's what's on your to-do list in the first place. And the goal is to get to the result in the, in the least friction way possible um another one focus so it's really easy to get distracted with meetings and emails etc but once you define what that meaningful work is you are going to be able to focus and vet every single thing that comes across your desk or into your inbox and know when to tackle it or if you should even tackle it um the next one is uh being personal engagement and what i mean by that is walking the walk so if if you as a leader tell people to simplify and you don't do it, no one will do it. If you tell people as a leader, just say no to meetings, but you attend every single one, people most definitely are not going to say no to meetings. So you have to do it first. You have to set the tone. And then the final thing is decisiveness. I mean, we all know that decision-making within companies is a huge, huge problem. And so if you can start to show people that it's okay to make a move and to do it quickly. They too will start to operate with speed and know that there's little penalty for doing the same thing. So, that's a lot of different things. That's six things. But I think if you could follow at least a handful of those to start, people will start to follow you too.
0: Yeah, I love that. And one thing we discussed is how we all want to eliminate low value tasks. You mentioned this earlier on, and you introduced a tool aptly named the Killing Complexity Tool. I'd love if you took us through this one because this is one we can apply to ourselves as well as our organizations.
1: It's in two parts, and it's really good if you do it as a team or with a partner because the irony, again, with complexity is everyone wants to say that every task they do has value. I mean, I even do it with my team. I was shocked because I, I said to them, we were doing a killing complexity, and I said to everyone, list your tasks, and that's what this exercise does is you, you list all the tasks that you do every every day or during a typical week, and then you assign a value to them. Is it valuable, not valuable, et cetera? And the first reaction from everyone is always, every one of my tasks is so valuable. I, d- I don't understand it, you know? And then you really have to push them. That's why you need a partner as a team to really think about is ev- what of your tasks are valuable and aren't valuable, and not everything can be valuable. And what you're gonna find when you rank it, and this tool gives you kind of a scale to do it, is it allows you to then plot it on, are you spending your time on high value or low value tasks? and you're spending a lot of time or little time on them. And the goal is to do as many high-value tasks as you can in as little time as possible. And by looking, actually just looking at your work and breaking it down into tasks or parts, you're able to get rid of the things that take a lot of time but have no value or don't take a lot of time but also have no value because that gives you the space to work on the meaningful work. It really is just a way to audit and have a way systematically to rank what you do to eliminate it
0: the other tools you have in the book are excellent as well and they all help us hold up a mirror to ourselves and this show is for rebels and rule breakers lisa so i thought this one would be particularly apt the next rule is perfect for that which is kill a stupid rule tool
1: okay this is the number one tool we have and i will tell you it's so simple that's why everyone loves it and I really, I could just rename my company the Kill a Stupid Rule Company, and I would make probably just as much money, right? Because <laughs> no um, no one comes to me and says, no, we're good. You know, we don't have any rules. We're fine. <laughs> so Kill a Stupid Rule actually was started by Commerce Bank, which is now TD Bank. And Commerce Bank said they realized as they were growing, they were getting too much complexity and it was taking them away from their customers, right? The valuable things. They started this monthly thing where people could submit a rule that was just stupid And the CEO, this is important because the leader has to help with this, ceremoniously would kill his favorite rule and reward people for doing it. And it became a thing. I mean, they saved tens of millions of dollars every year in time and money just by killing rules. So you can do this with your team and here's how it works. You get people in a room and you say, if you could kill any two rules at work that hold you back from being more productive or innovative, what would they be and why? And there's only two rules to this game. The first is You can't kill anything that are government-regulated, industry-mandated. If you killed those rules, you'd go to jail. Don't kill those rules, okay? Those are not on the table. Everything else is like a green rule. It's fair game. The other thing is you can only think about rules that are in your sphere of control. So these are rules that affect you every day within your own team. You're able to get rid of them as a team and decide you don't have to push them off the ladder. You give people, I don't know, 15 minutes. And they write down as many rules as possible. And here's what you find. At the end of 15 minutes, people want more time because they're coming up with so many things. The second thing you find when you finally do a debrief on this is most of the things that people come up with are not rules. Some are. But most of the things are cultural norms, assumptions around how we work, policies, procedures, tasks. They're not really rules. Those are quick wins and low-hanging fruit and things that you have control to get rid of right away. And I am continually shocked whenever I do a kill a stupid rule debrief about how people will stand in a circle. They'll read out their rules and someone within their own team will say, who told you that was a rule? Like we got rid of that a long time ago. Or who said you had to do it that way? And it's a really great way just to get to teams talking about not just rules, but how they work and the assumptions around it that need to change. It's the number one tool I tell people when they want to start to simplify. Do kill a stupid rule.
0: The whole concept here of removing things. There's a great Steve Jobs quote, and you do mention in the book. And he said, "I'm actually as proud of the things we haven't done as the things we have done. Innovation is saying no to 1,000 things." He's exactly right here, and you mention how Procter and Gamble, at the time led by A.G. Lafley, streamlined products to achieve success. I'd love if we we shared this because. A couple of weeks ago, we had on Alex Osterwalder, and he was talking about testing business ideas to remove the risk before you go and back them then. And it really ties nicely into this idea.
1: It's interesting about this ability to say no, because again, this is the more versus less, right? And Joni Ivey always says, I love this quote too, when he was talking about jobs, he said the best thing that jobs taught him was, you know, what did you say no to today? And that's where we get to this whole, it ties back to the killing stupid rules, killing stupid meetings the killing complexity tool. It's helping you get comfortable with saying no. So you can say yes to the things that matter. And I think people have to get comfortable with saying no, because here's the good news. People want to be nice and they don't want to hurt other people's feelings. They don't want them to take a front if they want to get rid of their meeting or not come to their meeting. So they say yes. But unfortunately, there's a great sacrifice that comes with that. And that's wasted time. And we actually, we just came out with a few online courses, actually, and as part of that about streamlining meetings and becoming a daily simplifier, one of the modules we have is getting comfortable with saying no. And we actually have a whole takeaway poster for people, 40 ways to say no, because people want to know how politely to say no in a way that still, you know, maintains cultural boundaries and teams, but allows them to protect their time. So they can actually spend time on things that matter. I think that's another thing is getting people comfortable with the way they will feel best saying no. And that's really a first step in changing their habits towards meaningful work.
0: I'd love to finish up on individual actions that we can take, but let's share a couple of the organizational actions because these are huge and they had massive results. There was a um, work you shared in the book done by Steve Strelson. And you said in the book, We talk a lot about corporate culture, but I believe we've lost sight of what it truly is. Culture is not colorfully painted walls. It's not collaboration rooms with large whiteboards. It's not the organic food stocked in the common room. It's much more than that. Most fundamentally, it's behavior, the way work gets done. It's the stress level at various kinds of meetings. And communication plays a role here. You say policies, handbooks, posters, and the like. But that's not the only place where culture is defined. Most of it is developed through the daily interactions that people have with their peers on a routine basis. I'd love if you shared this and Strelson's findings because these were fascinating.
1: What I think was interesting, this gets to why simplicity is so important, right? And it's really about the habits and behaviors. My feeling is... We're doing a lot of BS within companies. You know, we talk about having an innovative culture and being able to do really important things, but we're not talking about culture. We're talking about cultural aesthetics. We're talking about making people feel good on the surface, but not getting to it underneath. So yeah, what, you know, whiteboards and colorful walls and organic food in the cafeteria. That's great in terms of building culture and getting people inspired. But if that's all it took right, to get people inspired and doing meaningful things, Google would have a 100% retention rate of their people and they don't. They don't. Um, And the reason why is people come to work, they want inspiring places to work, but what they really want is inspiring work. Culture is the work you do every day. And so when you come to work, if your team, right, is all about meetings and emails, that is your culture. If your team is all about meeting with com- with uh, clients and getting outside and learning about what they want that is your culture and simplicity really helps focus on what that is because you're doing meaningful work. I think simplicity is your culture and it's a big driver to the habits and behaviors that will help you get to the meaningful work. So you know an exercise we do with teams it's really powerful, it's so powerful is we say what are the behaviors? That really annoy you every day that create complexity and people write them down and then we say what are the times when you felt like things just were so simple what did people do the behaviors the habits that really made that stick and they write them all down and it's surprising across most companies how similar they are and we review this list and we have them pick the three that they as a team are going to start to to model and behave so it might be things like um, we as a team are going to allow everyone to say no to as many things as possible Um, We as a team are going to stop using so many acronyms and be more clear in our communications. Um, We as a team are going to make the information we use every day more accessible to each other rather than protecting it and making it more complicated. We as a team are going to allow each other to make decisions without having to get approval from each other. It's that kind of stuff that allows people to stop, realize the behaviors that just create complexity. And then we start to agree on what are the ones we're gonna really start to give each other permission to do every day and model that behavior.
0: From an organizational perspective, you devote a whole chapter, the last chapter, to a case study in reinvention, simplification reinvention. And it's not Apple, it's not GE, it's not Amazon, it's achievable. And I love that you did this. You you did it from not a very sexy industry, not a very sexy business, no offense, to the Vancouver City Saving Credit Union <laughs> Van City. Canada's largest community credit union. And you say here, simplification requires leadership, resilience, tenacity, flexibility, and hard work. But there are certain lessons we can draw from Van City's experience, lessons that can be put into any organization. And I'd love if you shared these as a final way to rest the case for simplification for organizations.
1: Van City, and thank you for bringing that up, the reason I specifically use them. Uh, first of all, is because it gets a little exhausting when people hear the same case studies over and over about, you know, it's Google, it's Amazon, it's Netflix, it's, you know, whatever it might be. Those get a little annoying in a way. And the reason why is because very few people, after they, they get rid of the sexy part of talking about Google and Apple, most companies aren't them. It's just not realistic. You know, they don't have these giant war chests of money. Their company isn't digital and tech like that. That's just, it's not a thing for them. So they can't relate to it and Vancity Credit Union the reason i love them was it was so unexpected because it's such an unsexy industry and they are killing it in terms of simplification i i met this woman at a conference it was a you know banking conference i was speaking at it i was a keynote and and i'm roaming the trade floor afterwards and here's the credit unions right and they're kind of the, the sleepy giants in the financial services industry they're not fast they usually aren't first followers but they're nice and I ran into her and I was talking to her and she told me her title and she was the chief simplicity officer. And I almost fell over. It was like, that's a thing. I, I didn't know there was a thing. And she explained how they went about their change. It's really a change effort. That's what simplification is. How do you embrace change to focus on the work that matters? Because that's the ultimate goal, getting to the work that matters. That's what simplicity does. And she said, like most companies, we didn't change until something bad happened. <laughs> they had a technical implementation with an outside vendor that failed. I mean, like a dumpster fire. It was $50 million. They were having to consider getting rid of people because this implementation didn't work. And they said, God, this whole thing was going to be able to make it easier for us to talk to customers. Now, what do we do? We can't spend another $50 bucks." And employees, because it's such a nice company, volunteered and said, we'll give you suggestions of how to be able to better get to the customer and the simplicity effort was born. They, they created a team. They decided to just focus on policies and procedures that were getting in the way of getting to the customer. They created agile sprints, these two to three day sprints that would tackle any idea that was submitted. And this team would help run these sprints with whatever business unit submitted these problems and work them through how to get rid of these policies and procedures. And by the end of one year, they got rid of over, 300 policies and procedures, over 175 forms. They had saved thousands of hours and time. And it was all employee driven because people know what gets in the way. You just have to ask them. It was just such a great, simple effort that didn't require an outside consultant to come in and do it. They just had to set up a small team to give people the time and the space to get it done. If you get the book, I would read that chapter because it's something that any company or any small team could do on their own. To start making impact and getting to work that matters
0: that's interesting you said about the consultant the outside consultant because you know i often think about that heuristic that's in the ether today that's like job titles exist today that didn't exist 10 years ago but one thing that we witness with that is the rise of the expert or the rise of the specialist and every time a new set of experts are added to a business whether it's technical or process experts or people experts or whatever The problem is misalignment and communication because each new expert brings their own jargon, ultimately their own misunderstanding of what the process is.
1: It's interesting because I think the expert's great, but I think the future isn't, it's not what you know, it's how you think. And that's what we're seeing in the, I do a lot with the future of schools and future of education. One of the issues in businesses is the same thing we're seeing with students that come out of schools. They don't know how to think, you know, they know how to do and they've got depth. But the problem is, um, yes, we need expertise without question. But what's more important in this, you know, this VUCA world, which is constantly changing and unexpected, is getting people to understand how to think is going to be just as productive as what they know. And simplicity is the way to eliminate that friction so they can more easily think and solve those problems. So simplicity, again, it's like one of those soft skills versus in-depth skills that is without question something teams need to learn how to do. And it will pay off. It's a multiplier that's what it is. It's a force multiplier effect when they do that.
0: And one last thing then on the individual because I mentioned you talk about organizations and then you hone in every so often on the individual. Yeah. And you said from a personal perspective, there's loads we can do one simple one is the delete toxic people tool. And I love this. And you say, if the person is distracting you continually or sucks up your time, delete them. If it's a one way relationship in the other person's favor, delete them. If people don't appreciate you for who you are and what you have to offer, delete them. And, you know, for a change maker or uh, an innovator or an entrepreneur in a business, you need to do this because you need all that energy to drive the business forward or drive your mission forward. I'd love if you shared perhaps just one low-lying fruit exercise or tool that we can use to simplify our own worlds as change makers in today's society of VUCA.
1: Yeah, my joke always is you can kill stupid rules, you can kill stupid meetings, but you can't kill stupid people. So that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course everyone laughs, right? At that. First of all, individually, I think it's really helpful if you have a T chart and you write on the left hand side what you spend your, your time doing, you know, in a given week. And when you look at that list on the left hand side about what you do, circle the things that you think are valuable. And what you're gonna find is you don't you don't circle many. And if something isn't circled, you have to really look at yourself and say, why am I doing them? The answer to a lot of that is going to be obligation. And then you really have to figure out what are you obligated to or who are you obligated to and is it worth it? Because the only way you're going to get space to do what's meaningful for you, um, whether it's professionally or personally, is to get rid of the things that are not meaningful or valuable to create space for the things that are. And that's what you write on the right-hand side of your chart, which is what gives you meaning, what gives you purpose, what do you wish you could spend 100% of your time on if you didn't have to do anything on the left-hand side of the chart. And that kind of gives you a compass of how you constantly can look at your day and your to-do list and say, am I moving from the left side of the chart to the right side of the chart? That's just a simple exercise anybody can do, whether you stay at home all day or whether you are in a large organization.
0: And Lisa, for people who want to contact your organization, because you travel all over the world working on simplicity and removing complexity, how can they contact you and find out more about your work, but also your book?
1: Book, of course, you can go on Amazon and get Why Simple Wins or my other book, Kill the Company. Um, they can visit our website, which is futurethink.com. We've got lots of great tools and courses on demand that they can take on simplicity. And they can email me. Feel free to email me at innovate. At futurethink.com and that email will get to me and I am happy to answer any questions here um, and even give them some tools that they can use right away to help them get to the work that matters we want to help them reach their potential so please email
0: me author of why simple wins escape the complexity trap and get to work that matters lisa bodell thank you for joining us
1: thank you so much it was a pleasure